Miss the show? No worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast. A 12-year-old child's murdered by gangbangers well known to the law. And we have leaders who offer little more than platitudes. When will enough actually be enough? As we look at these modeling numbers and kids are at risk of losing yet more education at a time when they're already behind and no one is talking about the costs, which we won't see for years to come. And we'll also talk about the politics at play. Stephen Del Duca leveling some pretty big accusations against the premier. Do his accusations actually stand the test? I tested him. Let's get talking. Getting through to you. That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening? What do you think about the appropriateness at this point of the federal government invoking and using some of its emergency powers? That wouldn't go over too well, not just with me, with uh, all 12 other uh, premiers. That's not their jurisdiction. Uh, we, we don't need the nanny state telling us what to do. We understand our provinces. And I'll tell you, he'd have a kickback like he's never seen from, not just me, from every single premier. Uh, that, that just wouldn't fly. Hey, Lone Ranger, stay in your lane. You done little to late. Why start now? That is the message Premier Ford seemed to be sending today. Alex Pearson with you on this Friday. No, it's not Friday. I wish it were Friday. No, no, it is Thursday, November 12th. And we got a day packed, packed, packed with news. And uh, what feels like a very big shift in energy on this crisis in the last 24 hours. And we're going to go through all of the modeling numbers because uh, they have changed significantly. And uh, we'll try to break down what the very smart, pointy-headed people said. And, of course, they say it so um, very complicatedly that you just can't understand. Could someone please tell Dr. Williams, keep it simple, stupid, because no one knows what the hell you're talking about nonetheless here's the breakdown of what i picked up cases are going in the wrong direction numbers are going in the wrong direction at the rate they are going right now we could see 6500 cases by next month of course if we all just did our part of not being stupid and careless and having parties and going to weddings and banquet halls whatever you are that's doing festivals whatever just stop doing it and we probably wouldn't be here. But I just shake my head in frustration because this is all so avoidable. But of course, here we are. And it looks like a shutdown is uh, inevitable. The question is, who's going to shut things down? And David Aiken, who you heard off the top, and every time David Aiken weighs into the premier's uh, press conferences, I say, whoop, Aiken's coming in. What does he have to say? Because I always know that it's being asked for a reason. And it's being asked because the tone has changed from the prime minister. And that's because I guess it looks like the prime minister wants to ride to the rescue. And um, and if he were to invoke the Emergency Act, then it would give his government the power to take power from the provinces, just kind of like what his dad did back in the FLQ crisis. And on Wednesday, I'm going to play a little bit of audio. You know, Trudeau didn't outright tell the provinces to shut down, but he certainly made no secret that uh, that's what he wants. We're seeing record spikes this morning across the country. So I urge the premiers and the mayors to please do the right thing. Act now to protect public health. 
If you think something is missing in the support we're offering your citizens, tell us. Yeah. If by urge you mean shut it down, then we're picking up what you're putting down. So it looks like this whole Team Canada thing's no more because we're definitely starting to see the cracks in this relationship as the caseload surge. And um, we've heard from several doctors who have now come forward and they're demanding, you know, more restrictions. They feel that the premier's not listening to them. And that's because they feel that the premier's plans are, are too, too lenient. Now, look, as much as there is politics in politics, there's also politics in healthcare. Well, it's just a reality. And what are they basing this on? Yes, caseloads are going up in, in some areas a lot, but hospitals are not yet over capacity. We have time to turn that around. So like, are we really going to shut down an entire economy again because of what a few unelected doctors say? And, and look, that's not a disrespect to doctors. I have a lot of respect for them. And they may be right. A lockdown may ultimately be necessary. But health experts will always go to extremes in cautioning what we have to do. But again, they don't have to worry about millions losing jobs and livelihoods or losing their paychecks. And they're not running the province. They aren't elected officials. And Doug Ford is. And he made clear today that a second shutdown is going to be his last resort. The easy thing to do, folks, is sit back. Let's just shut down the whole province. <laughs> like, how, how, do you, how do you deal with the uh, you know, mental health again of, of people? It's easy for people to say, just shut everything down uh, when they're guaranteed a paycheck every single week. How about these hardworking folks here at Heddle Shipyards? Talk to the workers over there. If all of a sudden I went out there and said, guys, you're all shut down, and by the way, you aren't getting a paycheck, go collect unemployment. I'd like to see the reaction they have. Yeah, because that is the reality facing tens of thousands of people right now as we speak. They're not sitting around. They're not having a good time. They're not having dinner. They're worrying about how the hell they're going to pay their rent next month. And Trudeau and the premiers are having a call probably like right now. I'd love to be a fly on that wall because Ford's comments today were a warning for him to stay in his lane. And will he? He should. I mean, yes, it's absolutely fair to criticize uh, Premier Ford, but, you know, so far it has been he and the premiers who have done all the heavy lifting. Yeah, you know, Trudeau appears on TV, he hands out all the bags of money, and he tells us, this sucks, and then, you know, we have your backs. But, you know, while he's pushing for shutdowns, let's not forget, his government has failed to deliver on aid packages for businesses that have been promised help for months and months and months. And not only did they not fix the programs that weren't working, and a lot of businesses went out of business because of that, but the businesses that have been now shut down already, what, a month? They're still waiting for money from Mr. We Have Your Backs that hasn't been passed. It's still sitting in the Senate, and it's going to be sitting there for weeks. So here you've got the government telling you, don't worry, we've got your backs. We're all in this together. And the money isn't even close to coming in for these people. How can you ask all of these businesses to sacrifice everything and then you don't even arrive you don't even show up you just wag your finger and the CFIB warned small business you know today that the small businesses they will not survive another lockdown and if the Trudeau government does take over what are they going to do that the premiers haven't 
Because remember, a big reason we're in this mess is because of the Trudeau government's inaction and the screw-ups right from the start. The foot-dragging on things like, oh, I don't know, even having a pandemic warning system, not shutting down borders fast enough, allowing still to this day COVID flights coming in every day. We have weak quarantine laws that no one even takes seriously. Nothing of that has been fixed. They didn't bother to order rapid testing till like, oh, what, a week ago, two weeks ago? We don't have that in place. All of that could have been in place. They gave away the PPE. They flip-flopped on masks. I mean, he can wag his finger all he wants at the provinces, but his government has proved it's no better to deal with this than what the provinces have done. Hell, he hasn't even started working on a plan to roll out the vaccine everyone's excited about. I mean, again, this is something that's going to be dumped on the provinces. But in the United States, they've spent $12 billion and brought the military in to come out with a national plan to deliver the very thing that will give us freedom. They've been planning this for months. And what is our government doing? Oh, I don't know, proroguing parliament, shutting down things, uh, filibustering at at, uh, committee meetings. I mean, they've been doing nothing. And so the premier's right to tell Trudeau, you know, stay on the sidelines. I mean, you've been there for months. Why change that now? My question, and what I think a lot of people are questioning is, how the hell did we get here? How are we in worse shape now than what we were back in March? Did no one learn anything? Because we all did our part. We turned this thing around. We sacrificed. What the hell were all these elected experts doing between waves? How is it that, you know, John Tory, the very best he can offer today is ordering us to lock down, not leave our homes, only go grocery shopping? Did no one in all those months, you know, even think to come up with plans on how to learn to live with this thing, risk management plans? I mean, certainly no one in Dr. Davila's office did. They didn't even bother to bulk up tracing teams. They just quit doing it. And now they're running around, you know, with their hair on fire. But hey, your scarf collection's great. I mean, that lack of leadership in preparing for the second wave we all knew coming is a big reason why we're in this place now. And so shocking as case numbers are today, I think it's just more shocking that a city that had SARS as a dress rehearsal has learned nothing You know, and Doug Ford himself did himself no favors because he boxed himself into a corner by repeatedly saying all his decisions will only be based on medical advice. And you know what? Now he's trapped in that narrative because the reality is he has to take medical advice, but he also has to balance it with the greater good of an economy that if he allows to buckle will create a much bigger health crisis that will lead to a massive mental health uh, crisis and inevitably kill many, many more that uh, for some reason... No one in charge seems to be thinking ahead as that train wreck itself uh, is barreling towards us. I am extremely frustrated. I, along with many others, were on scene the day of of this occurrence. You know, it's a very heartbreaking, emotional situation and continues to be. The fact of people being on parole and, and being wanted for various things... To me, it's outrageous that these people weren't already in custody and, and, and behind bars. As Ron Tavener uh, of the police talking today, uh, addressing the news of 12-year-old Dante. That is what his name was, 12-year-old Dante, who was murdered while walking with his mo- uh, mom on Saturday afternoon, killed by a bunch of gangbangers who uh, shouldn't probably have ever had freedom because, again, all the red flags were waving. These were losers 
who had other convictions, had um, prohibitions on, on carrying weapons, which does nothing to stop them. And I'm sure that they haven't given two thoughts to what he, they did to Dante, his grieving family, or the neighborhood that they terrorized with when they fired off almost 30 bullets. I mean, to them, it's just collateral damage in this never-ending gang warfare that's playing out all over Toronto streets, but certainly in certain communities more than others. And then, you know, what are those in charge doing? Other than lip service, what are they doing? Nothing. Zero. A 12-year-old boy is killed helping his mom carry groceries, and it's met with a shrug, hashtags, and nothing more than inaction. You got to wonder, like, when is enough enough? Louise March joining me now, community and youth development uh, facilitator, also follow, uh, founder of the Zero Gun Violence Movement. Uh, how you feeling tonight? I mean, I, frustration doesn't explain it. Anger doesn't explain it. Sadness doesn't really explain it. Resignation? So you, no, no, you're right. Like, I, I just left Jane and Finch where the shooting took place. I was with some young people out there. I was with Nia Singh. He was doing a press conference. And I'm saying, how many, how many times do we have to do this? Over and over and over again. And we're not getting any change in how the political leadership in our city is managing this, right? And it is a frustration, anger is not enough to describe the, the, the heart-wrenching uh, feelings that you go through as you listen to these people cry, but they're not showing tears. They're, 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 they're. It, it's frustrating to, to know that we live in a city where we have the resources and means, but we just lack the leadership and the the commitment to do something seriously beside the lip service, the platitudes. We can almost predict what they're going to say before they even say it because they've said it so many times. Yeah, it, it gets insulting after a while when it's Thank just you. the same reaction every single time. It's, uh, you know, this is unacceptable. Um, you know, this brazen violence won't be tolerated, and yet it's tolerated every single time. If a 12-year-old, Lewis, doesn't, doesn't shock you, if two girls in a playground doesn't shock you, I mean, Day in, day out, we hear about this. I don't know what's going to force those in charge to finally take charge. I think I think we have, we have a major problem here in that it's not a priority, clearly. Toronto is a resourceful, rich, internationally acclaimed city. When we put our minds to something, Alex, we normally are successful at it. This is clearly is not a priority. What we keep hearing from the police uh, and from the political leadership is, well, we're going to apply all the resources and means to the police. We're going to invest in communities. We're going to invest in, in families. We're going to invest in kids. But we're not seeing that piece. We see the investment in the policing option. But we're not seeing the investment in the communities that we all know is needed. Right? And this is what's discouraging. We have a strategic action plan for potholes. We have a strategic action plan for every major concern, whether it's uh, opioids, whether it's housing. But we don't have a strategic coordinated action plan to deal with the gun violence and the gang violence. And that is what's painful because we have the resources and means, but it's not been activated by the people that should be. 
yeah, there's there's definite lack of will, lack of leadership, lack of uh, of um, you know willing to admit that there is a problem, you know, at all. And, and I'm not sure if you've yet seen the video, but there is now video released of this shooting. And when you see the um, callousness of these guys just riffing off bullet after bullet after bullet in this community where they don't care who gets hit, and in the stream is this little boy with his mom who clearly you don't see him getting shot. But, you know, he was one of the collateral damage, as you would call it, of this shooting. And y you see the gangbanger. They don't care. They just get in their car and drive away. And, you know, they'll do it again. You know, if, if they're arrested today, there'll be more that, that do it tomorrow. Yeah, we, we had the same thing in the summer on John yeah. Street downtown. Yeah, yeah. Luckily, the, the, the little kid there, he had, it, it's like it's a video game. They, mm. They're drugged. Because it desensitizes what they're going to go do. They think it's a video game where they can just turn it on and turn it off. So that brazenness that we're seeing, we've never, we, we didn't see that 10 years ago. We didn't even see that in the year of the gun in 2005. Right? And a lot of it is fueled, uh, and the police know this, by social media. Yeah. Threats, bragging, boasting. Right? Uh, what are we doing in that area to address it? Uh, for me, it's like a, like a jigsaw puzzle, Alex. There's all these different p pieces, policing being one piece, social media being one piece, employment, education, housing. They're all different pieces. Until we bring those pieces together and connect them, we can't solve this problem. Handing and it over to the police. <laughs> we know that by the time the police show up, it's late. Yeah. And the social media is a newer part of the game um, where they see this as their new turf to send messages, exactly. to send threats, to build their cred. Exactly. And one of those who is now charged, I mean, has a connection at some point through Drake. Um, you know, Drake's got a key to the city. He's supposed to be an ambassador of Toronto. And I say, you know, maybe it's time to do something like take away the key to the city and send a message because you don't get that honor if you're not going to stand up and start speaking out against this kind of stuff. You know what? If we had the right leadership, we could encourage Drake, we could encourage other key stakeholders to sit down around the table and mm -hmm. say, how is my piece, how is my work contributing to this problem? And how is it, what can we do to move out of it? But John Tory has this tendency to have these uh, one-off meetings with everybody, one-off, one-off, one-off. He can't bring them all together. And if we don't do that, we will not be able to come up with that coordinated action plan that involves and engages not only the police, but the social workers, the youth workers, the educators, the employers, they all have a role to play, right? And uh, we've never been able to bring them to the table at one time. And the only time, like we had this Sunday, we had John Tory and his people show up in uh, Jane Finch mm -hmm. and the community boycotted the, 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 the safety walk. The community said, no, we are not going to participate. In well, you shouldn't be treated as props for a photo op. I mean, that's what well, that's what it is. It's uh, the cameras show up, the politicians show up, then everyone leaves and the community is left to uh, to live in terror. And, and I have to think they've always in that, those corridors lived in, in some kind of fear. But I can't even imagine what it's like now, given the, the crime spree, as you well know, is all over the city of, of uh, Toronto and the GTHA. But there are certain pockets where these people, these communities live, um, you know, as if uh, they're living in terror. Look, you're exactly right. Today I met one mother. She has three sons 
Alex. She says she's afraid to let them out. Today I met this mother, three sons, mm. and she was um, she was crying. I cannot let them out. Whenever they go out, I'm ter- I, I, I'm in so much fear. Are they going to come home? But the thing, the sad thing about this, Alex, is that I, ne- I met another mother two years ago in another part of the city in Chester Lee, and she said the same thing to me. She had three sons, and she will not even allow them to take garbage out at the night. Yeah. So the communities are living in fear. It's like a cloud, a permanent cloud over these communities. They shut down. They pull the plug at 6 o'clock. As soon as the sun sets, they all retreat into their houses. How can you bring up children in Toronto in that type of environment and feel good about it? And how can the politicians feel good about it? Knowing this fact, because this is not new news to them. They know what's going on. They know the pockets. They know the communities. Mm-hmm. Well, they're hiding behind a virus right now, uh, but the real virus is one that's been with us for a very long time, and that is uh, gang violence that we have allowed to fester and now take control of our streets. You got, it would, if, you, if you can and want to send a message, what would that be tonight? The message to John Tory is the longer you take to address this crisis, that you've known about for the last six years, the more complicated it will become. Stop looking for magic answers and silver bullets. You need to focus on providing real political leadership and will. Stop pawning it off to the police. Stop looking for magic answers. We know that they don't exist, but the longer you take to find a solution to this, the more complicated it will become mm-hmm. and the more we're planting the seeds for the next cycle of violence that we will all pay for as a city in some way, shape or form. Yeah. I thank you so much for your time. I, uh, you're always very generous with it. And I wish we didn't have to have these conversations, but I, uh, I'm certainly happy to give you the platform because it's not acceptable. It's insulting. And, um, and, and no one is taking a leadership role in this other than those in these communities who are, uh, who are like you and just trying uh, to make change. And I appreciate that. Thanks, Alex, again. We'll talk again. That is Lewis March. The group he has uh, founded is Zero Gun Violence. And I wish, you know, I didn't have to have him on, but, you know, he has worked for years, years and years trying to force change and bring change. Shouldn't have to come to that. Because the mother he met today and the mother he talked to yesterday, he'll need a mother tomorrow and another mother and another mother. And I've met these mothers whose sons don't come home. And, and the fact that we just meet these things with a shrug and we've uh, normalized them, is just everything wrong with, uh, with society today. It, it just shouldn't be allowed, and we as a media shouldn't allow the talking points, and we shouldn't allow the spin. You know, there is change that can happen. It starts uh, not just in the communities themselves. Sentencing. Change it. Don't make stupid laws about banning guns that won't stop it, because they're not using those kinds of guns. You know, come up with some thoughtful legislation, but start investing in these communities and start getting them off social media and giving them that platform. There's just a few things you can do, but they just don't do it. And it's infuriating. You know, we're staring down the threat of yet another shutdown. And the question for, I think, a lot of parents is what does this mean for school? Because a lot of people just say, shut them down. 
And that's not the first thought that we should go to. I think it should be probably one of the last things and we should try to avoid it at all costs because I can't speak for any other parent, but my son's teacher recently told me that she's now reteaching huge portions of his last grade because the kids are so far behind. And I don't think it's unique to my situation. And as my next guest wrote in a recent op-ed in the Globe and Mail, this is uh, this whole nothing, something is better than nothing approach is robbing kids of invaluable skills that they need to learn, not just from books, but things with social skills. And nowhere in the conversation so far is there a discussion of, you know, how are we going to get this generation of kids caught up with hundreds of hours of missing education that are absolutely essential to their development. Kelly Gallagher-Mackay is a researcher and co-author or author of Pushing the Limits, How Schools Can Prepare Our Children for Today, for the Challenges of Tomorrow, and she joins us now. Good to have you, Kelly. Hi there. And since you wrote this article, you know, we're looking now at modeling today that suggests that we are very, very close probably to, you know, looking at a shutdown. Um, You know, your thoughts on why this might not be the best solution as much as many as people might think it would be. Why shouldn't we be automatically shutting schools down? Well, I would certainly say that schools are the last thing we should be shutting down in our society. And uh, I'm not a public health doctor, um, so I can't give you all the stats on how kids are less likely to get sick and less likely to carry on um, to to transmit the disease. But uh, they're a lower infection risk. And more importantly, or from my perspective as an educator, we need kids to keep learning and developing in a healthy way, and school is an essential part of that. And it's really a very big risk for kids in our society if we um, just shut down all of the all of the things they get out of school by by sending them home again. Yeah, I mean, there will be people, I and mean, we know that there is spread in school. We know that. And, and, and so a lot of people will say, well, look, if you, if you shut down the schools like we did in the spring, which we did at a much lower caseload, then we can get rid of the spread. My concern, and I think a concern for many, many parents, is that you shut the schools down because it's not just about child care. It's not just about keeping the economy moving. But school is, and especially when you get younger kids, there are two different issues. There are the high school kids and the costs they pay. But certainly for younger kids, when they lose this much time and their structure is completely blown to smithereens, there's a long-term consequence that goes far beyond, you know, the immediate, um, you know, uh, problems it causes in the home, you know, place. So there is a long-term consequence that that we haven't yet seen. There really is. And we're starting to see international data on that. We don't have a lot of Canadian data yet, but, uh, you know, there is, a fair number of studies that are saying kids are losing between a third and half a year based on where we would normally expect to be at, kids to be at this time based on last mm-hmm. year's shutdown or on uh, limited schooling, you know, or online only schooling uh, today. So we know that there is big learning gaps as measured by test scores. we don't have any information about dropouts, but that's a mm-hmm. big concern too. If kids are find school less engaging, and kids who aren't so good at school might be more inclined to decide it doesn't matter and it's not for them. And uh, we know that an educated society is a prosperous society um, and a healthier society and a more civically engaged society. So we really do need to care 
about what kids aren't learning if they're not able to stay in school and even if we are able to keep schools open because I don't think I do think that the message that schools should be the last thing we close is is uh, working its way out. We we still need a catch up plan for the yeah. the harm that's already happened, and we do not have any kind of discussion of pandemic recovery in place in Canada that talks about what about kids? How are we going to catch up on the health losses, the social losses, and the learning losses that we're we're starting to see? Because those compound over time. Yeah, and I sense that's because we are now in this festering crisis, which uh, we, we, we could have avoided in many ways, but here we are festering again. And it's not just about the books and the adding and subtracting and what they miss there. It's about the psychological um, problems that will, will continue to manifest for, for years to come. I've noticed many changes in my own little guy. Um, but, you know, then there are the lower income kids who we hear not just falling through the cracks, you know, they, 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 they drop out of the school system uh, totally. But then you have you know, situations where abuses at home aren't being addressed. You've got children who are going unfed. There are a whole bunch of other social implications that I don't think a lot of people think about. Um, you know, so it's not just as simple as shut down the schools. No, schools are an essential part of our safety net and an essential, and the learning kids do at school is also essential for their long-term well-being. So schools provide a huge amount of support and positive environments for most kids even though there's lots of problems with schools they are really an important part of how we take care of kids in our society in the full well-rounded sense so we really really need school to ensure healthy able children who grow up and become adults who can you know quickly change jobs and uh, help invent the next cure for cancer and uh, manage our skilled trades. We need, we need kids who are really ready, willing, and able coming out of our school system, and they need to be learning. And so what- unfortunately, um, you know, there was a great big study by some well-known um, economists at Stanford University that said kids who are in K-12 right now are looking at a 3% earning loss over their lifetime based on lower skills because of just this interruption we've had so far. And as a society globally, where if we aren't able to help kids catch up on the missing skills, we're looking at a a 1.5% decrease in GDP for the next century. Jesus. The learning the kids are doing right now matters for our future and for our country. And we need to care about that. And I think that educators have done an extraordinary amount of adapting under very difficult circumstances. So I don't think we can say, oh, hey, schools, why don't you do more and catch these kids up? (laughs) That's not a reasonable thing to say. It's time to really think about for higher levels of government, where are you going to how are you going to invest in making sure kids can catch up and be supported uh, to recover from the harms of COVID and the COVID response. 
Just before I let you go, though, uh, Kelly, what would you say then, because I'm starting to see a lot of this chatter of, well, just shut down the schools now until Christmas or just shut them down for two, three weeks and let's just clean them up and, um, you know, get the kids out of the school. I mean, those disruptions um, have long term effects because stability is crucial, especially in those elementary uh, grades. Yeah, I think they really are. Um, I would say uh, it should be the last measure that we undertake like after everything else. And that is where the public health consensus is. That's what you'd hear from sick kids. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's what you're hearing from all the public health doctors is that school is the last thing that should go. We need to take the pandemic seriously. We need to deal with it and do what we have to do to contain the spread. But schools have to be, you know, the very last thing we close. They're the lowest risk thing. And we need to really look seriously again at what, what are the public health authorities recommending in terms of how do we adapt our prevention measures um, to make sure they get stronger and more robust. Maybe we really have to re-examine the class size thing. There are things we can do that we haven't done yet that are alternatives to shutdown in schools. Yeah, there's an awful lot of collateral damage outside of getting this virus. And as we always, you know, hear, the the cure cannot be worse than the disease. And if we just shut down, it it will be. Yeah. But we measure unemployment. We don't measure learning loss. So we need to start paying attention to the harms to children as well as the really horrifying disruption to, you know, so many people's lives. Well, we'll continue this conversation because it is one that is evolving. I just, uh, I want to hear people so casually and cavalier about it. I think, oh gosh, it's not oh, that no. simple. But no, I will. Um, I don't think anybody thinks it's simple. They say it's not rocket science, it's harder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Kelly, I appreciate your time on this matter and I will reach out to you again on this. Okay, thanks, Alex. Thank you. That is Kelly Gallagher uh, Mackay joining us. And so again, there is a cost to every measure we take right now. And some of the costs can be far greater. They just won't be seen for years to come. That is the challenge, one of many that we're dealing with. I don't like pinning the docs against politicians versus the health table. And everyone has their opinion. I respect everyone's opinion. But the, the fact is, Rob, that Dr. Williams came to us with a framework. The the cabinet approved the framework. And ultimately, at the end of the day, there's different tables that report into Dr. Williams and give their point of view, and I, I respect everyone's point of view. But there is no light between Dr. Williams and myself. And as you can ask about three o'clock, uh, there's never once, never once Dr. Williams has ever come to me from the beginning of this pandemic and said, Premier, I think you need to do that. And I've said no, never once. So that is Premier Ford defending uh, accusations that he rejected advice from his uh, own public health agency when it came to creating that new color-coded framework for COVID-19 restrictions. And this is a Star uh, Toronto Star report that suggests that the executives leading the uh, organization's pandemic response says that they only learned of the crucial details when they were released publicly last week. But, I mean, you parse between the lines, you know, how many opinions does Ford have to get if he does have a point person in Dr. Williams who collects many, many recommendations and has to issue and deliver uh, a suggestion to the premier. But as far as uh, the leader of the Liberal Party is concerned, it is 
lies, possibly a cover-up. And that is Stephen Del Duca, who joins me now. Good to have you, sir. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right. So lots of um, lots of accusations flying today. You accused Doug Ford of lying about the, you know, following the advice of public health. Now, what proof do you have of that? Well, the report that we saw from Dr. Deeks from Public Health Ontario that they put forward a recommendation that was watered down when it was announced by the government a number of days ago. And we've not yet seen any shred of evidence from this government uh, about what they used to back up their their uh, the plan that they released, the very confusing color-coded plan that they released. Dr. Deeks is one. I mean, there are numbers of people who sit at that table. And so if one does not get included in the overall decision making, that does not make, I think, for a cover up. I'll agree with you. I'm not the biggest fan of that color coded anything. I just think it makes a confusing situation all the more uh, confusing. But I also think, you know, uh, given the number of people in health who um, are giving opinions and telling what they what we should and should not do. I mean, at the end of the day, as you well know, they're not elected. Doug Ford is and he has to balance the decision that is best, not just for health, but the economy. Well, but listen, I mean, Dr. Deeks is one. I, I can rhyme off the other people who have disagreed publicly with Doug Ford's approach. So Dr. Lowe, the chief medical officer of health from Peel Region, Dr. Davila, the chief medical officer from Toronto, the Ontario Medical Association representing 43,000 doctors across Ontario, the Ontario Hospital Association, and the list goes on from there. Over the last couple of weeks, uh, these groups and others have said that the plan that Doug Ford put forward doesn't make sense. It's not the best way to fight the second wave of the pandemic. And I said, you know, I think that when Doug Ford looked in the, the eyes of the people of Ontario and said that he was going to take the best medical advice and listen to it, I think he lied. And I think he's betrayed the people of Ontario. And if Dr. Williams has gotten other advice that suggests or that Doug Ford's gotten other advice that suggests they've moved in the right direction, then I call on him to disclose that advice transparently, let us know who it came from and what led them to the decision they made. But in the absence of that, I just don't buy it. Well, I mean, the health officials are all uh, within their own jurisdiction to make decisions as they see fit. I mean, and I'm, I'm not sure Dr. DeVille is the best example. I mean, she stopped tracing in her office a couple of months ago because for whatever reason, they didn't uh, decide to bulk up tracing in the many months uh, that we had to get ready for this second wave. And I think there's a lot of blame to go around at many, many levels of government. But, you know, the premier didn't say that numbers were gone. He did say they were going in the right, right direction. Uh, but he did say, you know, that we were moving the right direction. Direction and, and and here we are today. I'm not sure if, if it's okay to... It, politics is going to be at play. No question about it. Y you guys are competing for, so, for pow sure. power. Sure. I was just going to say, don't forget, a couple of weeks ago, Doug Ford said we were flattening the curve and the numbers no, were no, he didn't say flat. Right he, said the, he, said, he said they're moving in the right direction. He didn't say and, we, and a few days they have flattened that, the and, curve. And a, for, a few days before that, he used the term flattening the curve, that he was hearing we were flattening the curve. And the numbers yeah, flattening the curve is not saying flatten the curve. I mean, that's a nuance. I mean, the, the bottom line is, but no, <laughs> the you, numbers it's a are going the wrong way. And the numbers well, are going the wrong way, right? Yeah, the numbers yeah. are going absolutely the wrong way. But mm -hmm. what would you do if you were in power? You said you would shut down the the uh, lockdown, the province back in October seventh. No, no. I mean, no, I didn't. I didn't actually. I never used the term lockdown. In fact, what I said back in October, what I'm still saying today, is that if we want to avoid a lockdown, like I do, I don't want to see a second lockdown. I don't want businesses and small business entrepreneurs in particular to suffer any more than they have. I don't want schools to close. But in order to actually make that happen, it's the old ounce of prevention being worth a pound of cure. You have to take decisive action. You have to be consistent, clear, and coherent. 
And Doug Ford's been anything but across the board. And here we are again today, understanding that he's got a provincial agency called Public Health Ontario. And this is a public health crisis that we're grappling with in Ontario uh, with the pandemic. They gave recommendations. They never heard from the government again. And then when the government produced its color-coded system a few days ago, uh, the, the criteria were completely diluted and watered down. And that's concerning because the numbers keep going in the wrong direction. So, so what different would you do then other than a 28-day shutdown in, in uh, GTA, in the Peel and Toronto area, without would, crushing businesses? Well, so first of all, I would, I would actually adhere to the advice that Public Health Ontario gave. And so the, the criteria that they established in their recommendation, I would use those. I would use their criteria. Secondly, we're now well over a month since Doug Ford said that he would make $300 million available to support small businesses that are suffering through this second wave. I've spoken with hundreds of small business entrepreneurs across the province, uh, in particular in the hot zones like Toronto, Peel, York, and Ottawa. They have no clue how to access that money. They have, there's been no urgency. There's no accessibility to that money. They don't know what well, the criteria is. Well, well, hold on a second. I mean, the money from the federal government is sitting no, in no, the no, Senate. They the have, three, they, hold on, hold on. This is the 300 million from Doug Ford. That's a provincial, but the federal government has been months in the making trying to get money that they failed on several times. And, and the money that they promised a month ago is still sitting in the Senate, who, which is now having to rewrite the thing and fix what should have been out the door weeks ago. There's but plenty to blame of go about. But Alex, that doesn't stop Doug Ford as the premier leading a majority government in Ontario from delivering on money today for small businesses. The, you know, he can pass the buck to municipalities, to school boards, to teachers unions, to the federal government, to his next door neighbor. He can do all of that. It's not good enough. That's my point. He's the well, premier I, I haven't actually heard him pass the buck, and I've been as critical on him, I, I think, as most have. Um, I don't think I've heard him pass the buck. I think he said several times that the buck stops at him. I just, what I hear is a lot of criticism. I never actually hear what anybody else would do differently, because at the end of the day, the doctors and the health officials can say whatever they want. They're not elected officials, and he has to balance an economy and health crisis, and both of them, as you well know, uh, very much play off of each other and, and are damaging. And a lot of the issues that we face today with respect are because of the inaction and the damage done by your government over 15 years. I mean, there's plenty oh, to go I'm, beyond I'm, that, yeah. but with long-term care and all, but you can't yeah. pass that because you were part yeah. of that. Listen, Alex, no offense, but we, we've been nine months into this pandemic. You're going to talk about what happened 15 years ago and pretend it has some bearing on what we're dealing with today. Well, of course it has as a bearing case, on case, it. We have lackluster long-term care that see, didn't happen as, overnight. As, as we see numbers suggesting or projections that suggest we might be at 5,000 cases in the next two to four weeks, I'm looking forward. I want to see what Doug Ford's going to do today, tomorrow, to fix the situation. And I'm telling you, he's betraying the people of Ontario. Would you have the same criticisms for the federal government that still has borders open, still has COVID flights allowed in, still hasn't bulked up quarantine rules, still hasn't gotten funding for business? I mean, is there any level of uh, criticism for them? I mean, they order rapid testing way too late. Uh, they still don't have a vaccine plan even thought of yet. I mean, do they get any blame for this? Because it is up to provincial jurisdiction and health, but there is blame to go around absolutely at the federal level, which is in charge of doing things like getting rapid testing and all the big things passed. But everything that I'm talking about falls solely and exclusively within the jurisdiction of the premier. And I know this. I've served inside the cabinet room. I know exactly how much power a premier leading a majority government in Ontario has at his or her disposal. And I wish Doug Ford would step up. So if he's got evidence 
that shows all of us why he's made the decision to dilute the recommendations coming from Public Health Ontario, just show it to us. If Dr. Williams is getting advice from all kinds of other people who have different opinions, tell us who they are and what their recommendations are. If he's got a plan to deal with the next two to four weeks, let us know what it is other than lecturing people from the podium. If he's got a plan to deploy money to small business entrepreneurs who are dying out there financially, issue the money, get it out the door, tell them what the criteria is. These are not, these are not things, this is not too much to ask of a premier. And no, nope, they're not. But, but again, if you're going to accuse for delivering. Well, but again, you're suggesting that he lied about stuff. I haven't heard tangible evidence other than doctors say this or doctors say that. You know, there's a lot of politics in politics, but there's just as much politics within our Medicare system that we all know they have their opinions, but they're not elected officials. And at the end of the day, he's got to balance and make the decisions that will benefit both the health crisis and the economy. It's... I I hear that and and I can understand where you're coming from, but I am an elected official and I am a politician. And in a public health crisis, I would much rather listen to the medical experts than to politicians. Much okay. Better. Well, uh, well, your government didn't listen to the experts who said keep the pandemic gear going. I mean, you threw it out. So we uh, had all this under <laughs> SARS. We had all this under SARS, and your government and the federal government didn't bother to protect it. And therefore, you know, we were already behind the eight ball from the get go. When we talk about blame, there is so much to go around at every level of government, from past as well as present. So in the buck today, with the people of Ontario looking for answers and leadership, stops with Doug Ford. And Doug Ford has a responsibility to get it right, to stop betraying the people of Ontario, to stop lying and actually lead. And he's not doing that right now. And that's why the numbers are going in the wrong direction. Well, we will see what happens. And he will have to answer to uh, to the electorate, as you well know. Appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. Have a good night. You as well. That is a liberal leader, Stephen Del Duca. And so no question he's going to hold the premier's feet to the fire, as he should. Uh, That's the job of the opposition. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday starting 630 sharp. We've got lots to talk about these days on point. I'm Alex Pearson and this is Global News Radio.